Julius held the ball out and came across the baseline. It came right, basically sort of across my face. <laughs> so we decided to start a mini series that we're going to call The Deep End. It's basically where we interview people we find interesting and informative. Our first guest is Ron Thomas, a former sports reporter and now professor and director of the journalism and sports minor at Morehouse College. Following him is Jorge Valencia. Now, he's in Mexico, so I had to contact him by phone. But first, here's Ron Thomas. So I'm, I'm Ron Thomas. I'm director of the journalism and sports program at Morehouse, and Emmanuel is one of my students. And I've been, before I came to Morehouse in 2007, I was a sports writer for a little over 30 years, um, covering mainly professional and major college sports in Chicago and the Bay Area. But also for two years, from 82 to 84, I was the um, first NBA writer for USA Today. So I've covered major college um, basketball and football. And um, then I was a beat reporter covering the NBA for most of the 1980s. And I covered the 49ers for four years, the Giants, 2002-2001. And I've covered a lot of professional tennis. Well, what, what would you say is your favorite out of all those to cover? Oh, I think pro basketball. Was that? Yeah. Uh, um, when I when I covered, it was a little different than it is now. Nowadays, the um, seats that the press is in often sort of high up in the arena, and also the players after a game will take a a charter flight right after the game. And I think it limits the amount of time you spend with them. But when I covered, uh, we had seats right on the floor, so I used to sit next to the bench maybe and um you know near half court so you were you almost felt like you were part of the game and you know you could see everything up close and personal and then also um we all flew together because the teams flew commercial mm-hmm. so you were up at six thirty in the morning you know drinking apple juice or uh, drinking you know coffee to try to stay awake <laughs> and getting a chance though to you know talk to players informally do you have any moments like sports where you just seen like a crazy incident or, you know, you were at a game that was like super memorable or anything oh, yeah. like that? Yeah, I've got a lot of them. I mean, from, from like, for instance, if you watch the NBA commercials or, um, you know, they do highlights and they show Julia serving with that driver. He's driving against the Lakers down the right hand side and he sticks his hand out of bounds. But he comes up up around the basket and shoots a layup under, um, uh, over yeah. Kareem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was I was sitting right there. I mean, as Julius held the ball out and came across the baseline, it came right basically sort of across my face (laughs) because I was in the first row on the baseline. So I was there for that one. There's another one where Julius comes, again, they're playing the Lakers and Mm -hmm. he comes from way over the left hand side and dunks on Michael Cooper and Cooper sort of ducks all the way. I was there for that one. Mm -hmm. When um, Magic, I think it was game six of one of the finals and he hit the game winning um, baby hook shot Mm -hmm. from the foul Mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. My seat. On the, and, and again, this is when we used to sit on the floor, was right in line with the shot. He shot it from the foul line. I was sitting That's right crazy. in line with the foul line. So he shot that right in front of me. <laughs> That's you know, crazy. You know? um, That's I covered all those finals, the, the Magic Bird finals. It was, it was, and I covered, yeah, I covered the NCAA Magic Bird too. It was, it was just great. But when, when I was covering from like 79 to 87, that was, I came in a couple of years after the ABA merger. So Julia Serving, George Gervin, mm-hmm. Artis Gilmore, they still were in their late 20s, early 30s. So they still athletically were at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then you had Bird and Magic come in the early 80s. So, and, and then at the end of that period, Michael Jordan came. So you had tremendous amount of NBA talent plus the leftover ABA talent. And th- you'll just never get that type of grouping of, of talented players again. 
I just kind of like off on a tangent. But you know how players are resting, and you know it's a big deal now because you know they say science says they shouldn't play 82 games. But back then, Carl Malone played all 82 games. Michael Jordan played all 82 games with no like charter flights. So it's like completely different. So like, how do you how do you feel about that? This is an interesting question. We had a, my sports reporting class today, and I raised that question, and like it exploded <laughs> in yeah. different opinions. So, I, you know, let's face it. I covered sort of what now I guess would be considered the old school basketball, as, as you know, as you described it. And my feeling basically is. Um, the players now have it easier than ever because they do have the charter in the, the charter flights, um, and also because over the years the league has cut down on the numbers of back to back games. Uh, so I, you know, I sort of feel it. it I don't because I'm of the opinion. You can tell me if you disagree. Mm-hmm. There's only two players in the league right now that can say I don't want to play tonight because I'm just tired, and that's LeBron because he's he went to the final six straight years, mm-hmm. USA basketball, all of that. And Dirk, just because he's he's old, so he's kind of like not to be like mean spirited, yeah. but he's like he's up there in age. I think it's like his last year, it's close before. to forty. Is yeah, and he's still like a big part of that team. So those are like the only two players that I feel I can say. I th- I feel if you really can't play, if you're hurt, yeah, you know, then there's no use aggravating, possibly aggravating a minor injury into a major injury. You ought to sit out if you're hurt, and you should have sat out twenty years ago if you were hurt. And I also feel you know, guys, particularly in the wintertime, guys get sick, they get the flu, all that type of stuff. Um, but to me, you're being paid so much and you're an entertainer. It's mm-hmm. like... Right, that's your job too. Like, yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, you're a comedian and they paid you to appear at the Fort Wayne, Indiana Auditorium and you say, ah, gee, I've done three gigs in a row. I'm so tired. I'll take <laughs> this one off. Yeah. I also think it's very unfair to the fans who um, pay big money now to come see the games and particularly for the big games like, you know, San Antonio versus Golden State. Yeah, and then like you get to the game and the stars aren't playing. That's mm-hmm. terrible. So you think it's the media's fault? Because I know we, we talk about LeBron. We talk about LeBron's legacy. And obviously he's he's worried about championships because he knows that's how it's going to be judged. So you think that's the media's fault? Um, I know Steve Kerr sat out the three Warriors stars because he, he was trying to make a statement to the league about the scheduling. That the scheduling was too tight. And they did have, I think they played eight games and 11 in 11 days in eight cities and sort of came home in the middle of that for one home game and then flew out again. Mm-hmm. That's crazy scheduling. Well, he's in his feelings, though. He's, he's mad. He's mad about last weekend. Oh, no, it's crazy. I mean, what happened? I, I didn't, I missed that one. The, I think it was the Warriors. The Warriors and the Spurs, right? Yeah, the Warriors didn't play, like, Clay, Steph, Draymond. KD's obviously hurt, so there's, everybody's watching Sean Livingston and Andre <laughs> Dunn, but And, and Sean was Dallas. the star. I mean, well, you said Andre Dunn. Uh, <laughs> and Kawhi didn't play, so the Spurs and Greg Popovich is kind of known for wrestling. Yeah, I was about to say Greg. So yeah. Pop is known for that. He started that, yeah. really so intentionally. Adam Silver, the commissioner, was mad that yeah. it's a national TV game, Saturday prime time. You know, they got the whole commercial with Little John yeah. turned down for Saturday night prime time, whatever. Yeah, and no one played, and it's like no one wants wow. to watch this. And then wow. so now, if you're a fan, you know you get to. Pick your season ticket package. Mm-hmm. All right. So you say, okay, well, I'm definitely going to go to the Cleveland game. I'm going to get that package and I'm going to get the Spurs, right? Mm-hmm. And now do you have to think, where they got? Is Are LeBron going to play? Because <laughs> I'm paying $250 here for my family wow. of four. Yeah, I'm like, paying a thousand bucks. Imagine being like a kid in Los Angeles yeah. and you get LeBron comes to the Staples Center yeah. and say no, you save, say you save all, all your money. Mm-hmm. And wow. that's, a, that's a huge like price that's, to pay for a ticket just to see yeah. LeBron. 
And he's on he's on the That's bench yeah. drinking coffee and eating a cookie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely yeah, happened yeah. Like, to my parents before. Like I know yeah. we they went to Laker games and then like Kobe wasn't playing. They're like, well, we came all the way here. They just gonna rest Kobe. Nah, like, but they made up be, for it though. It's about your playoffs, yeah. But my parents they're kind of in a different boat because they actually saw Kobe score eighty one points. So Ooh. that's crazy. Yeah, then we still have the tickets and everything. Crazy. Would you think? Would you take Lonzo Ball if you were a GM? You know, I haven't seen him play, but I've heard enough people talk about him that, yeah, I'd take him. But my favorite player is Magic Johnson. And if he can run he's, a team yeah, he's, like Magic. Magic's trying to get Lonzo. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Oh, I'm sure. Because those those types of guys, I would take, if I was starting a franchise, I'd take Magic over Jordan. Really? Because, really? because Magic makes everybody better. I mean, Jordan does it in his own way, but Magic distributes the ball. Mm-hmm. And, and he's an exciting player. He's an effervescent personality. I mean, he, he rejuvenated Kareem's career just with his personality, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and, and he's great with the press. Um, Magic was just, he was just the best. Yeah, phen- yeah he's just a phenomenal ball player. I see that she wrote something about um, blackface being rare in the press, but do you still think that's an issue? Oh, yeah. I definitely do. We we had a um a, a current NBA.com columnist Sean Powell come mm-hmm. to talk to my basic news writing class mm-hmm. today. And um he was talking about when he started in the business, which was about twenty five years ago, he was the first black sports reporter at this particular paper in St. Louis. And at that time that wasn't that unusual. But now if you went to a lot of papers, you may not be the first ever. But you might be the only one. I mean, there still is a small sprinkling of, of black sports reporters. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the columnist level, actually, he and I were talking today. He was saying they're fewer than there were when we were in, both in the business. I mean, right. then we probably reached a height of about 25. But some of those guys have retired. A lot of papers have, um, you know, have closed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a higher percentage of black reporters in general, not just sports who get laid off than, than whites. You add it all up, you know, our numbers, at least at that level, may be dwindling. And we've never had many sports setters. We may have four. So, yes, it is a big problem. And it's not, I mean, it's not a problem necessarily of um, blatant racism. Right. That's, that's the, 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 but, but it is a problem of, do, you know, just growing up, everybody's subject to racial stereotypes. Black people are more or less likely to absorb them so much, you right. know. And we're more, there, there are topics, maybe subtleties of, of things that will pick up that others won't. You know, it's like if you hire a woman into your sports department, she's, she's just naturally going to be interested in more women's, female athletes. Um, issues mm-hmm. than men will. Mm-hmm. That's why you have diversity in your sports department. So you have a mix. You know? mm-hmm. So that's where we really contribute. And there's just not enough of us, particularly when you compare it to the number of prominent athletes. I recently heard about, well, after the whole Colin Kaepernick thing came out, it kind of, the news kind of died out about it a little bit. And, um, but recently, I've I've been hearing about him being supposedly being blackballed from the NFL because now he can't get a job at any teams or you know different things. Maybe because of what he did, or maybe Tell because he's, he's a, a good mediocre player. He's just not a good quarterback. But do you anymore. think like he's that? But do you think he's so bad to where he can't get a job? No, I'm saying that's like, why. Like, like you Geno Smith still has a job. Yeah, I'll pick him over Geno Smith. I would. Way, to be honest with you, Geno Smith has more accuracy. He has a better arm. Well, Kaepernick has a has a cannon for an arm, but I feel like Geno, Geno Smith is more accurate. 
And he kind of squeezed it in that window a little bit. And, I mean, I'm not sure NFL GMs want to deal with what comes yeah, to that's a, But that's the whole thing. So it's like, essentially, us being blackballed, they don't want to deal with it. But well, you still have to be able to play. I, 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 there are some people talking on ESPN about this. And one of the points they made is it's really early to tell. They were saying at this time, there's still a lot of quarterbacks out there who are looking for jobs. So mm-hmm. he's one of several. But he, but um, I can't remember who made this comment. But he said, if if we get to training camp and nobody has even signed him, then you wonder if it's because of being blackballed. He, you know, the, he's in a situation where... There, there may be, I'm sure there will be, a couple teams that just don't want to deal with him because of the publicity. Mm-hmm. Then there may be some other teams who don't think he's a very good quarterback. And it may all add up to him not getting a job. Mm-hmm. But he should be able to get a tryout. He'll I mean, he signed. should get invited. If, I mean, if Gino gets signed, he'll get signed. He's going to be a yeah. backup wherever he right. goes, though. So. But that's the thing. I mean, he's definitely worth getting a, getting a shot as a mm-hmm. backup because, you know, he's very mobile. Um, you know, he did want that's to take a, key. a team. That's, that's a key. Yeah, all, that's a key. He was in the Super Bowl, what, three or four years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah. So he's got a lot of potential. And sometimes guys just need to get in a different system or they need to get with the right quarterback coach, you know. And if, and they've had several head coaches, which means in the last few years, which means they probably changed their quarterback coach. I think it all fell apart when um, Harbaugh went to Michigan. I think that's when, like, mm. I think Harbaugh, Harbaugh and Kaepernick were like a – they weren't necessarily Belichick and Brady, but they were mm-hmm. in that same like. Yeah, and that can be very important, particularly for a quarterback. You know, particularly if, if you um, there's a guy named Kendall Stewart. You know, he played uh, several years ago with the Pittsburgh Steelers, mm-hmm. and people were always talking about what a disappointment he was. But if if you counted going from college to the Steelers, he had something like. Five different quarterback coaches in six years. Oh, yeah, and everyone, you know, is going to give you different tips. Want you to do things a different way. Um, maybe bring in, maybe the offensive system changed. And the, the the year when he was the best was I think was the only time he had the same quarterback coach for two years in a row. Yeah. So sometimes it's a function of stuff like that that you can't control. Yeah, you know. So I, I know you read Bill Roden's book, Forty Million Dollars mm-hmm. Slave. So do you think? Do you think that's true? I guess what I'm asking is, are they are they really like just overpaid slaves, or do you think it's? Uh... Well, what I think is, Bill was raising questions that we used to raise in sports reporting all the time, which is every year we would talk about why don't players take any political or unpopular stands anymore, and we would always talk about the fact that they can make so much more money. I mean, when Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, and I'll leave Ali because he was very. He was a different thing because boxers, they make their own money. But um, when when he was supported by Jim Brown and, and by, um, Kareem, Kareem and, and so on, all those guys played for teams. And and really, black players, nobody was making a whole lot of money at that time. Mm-hmm. And black players weren't getting any endorsements. Mm-hmm. So financially, of course, they didn't want to get fired. But there wasn't a whole lot at stake compared to mm-hmm. now. And so now guys come and they, all of a sudden they're making $10 million a year. And they're spending every dollar of it and everything. Yeah. And it, they just started to be into, I'm going to protect my paycheck. You know? yeah. And so one of the most interesting and I think encouraging things about most, about these last few years, ever since Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. is that players are starting to speak up a little bit in different ways. It started with the Miami Heat 
um, all putting on hoodies in honor of Trayvon. Mm-hmm. And now now you get to this year with Colin Ka- Kaepernick. And then you get, remember there is a teammate of his who just knelt with him next to him the next game so he wouldn't be alone. Mm-hmm. And then other people taking this up. So now we're starting to get, we're starting to see this small group of, um, of activist athletes. And that, to me, that's a very encouraging development. That means that they're willing now to sort of um, um, take a stand. And I never thought I'd see it again. Do you mm. think? Do you think there's a place for that in sports, though? Mixing politics and sports, kind of. I don't think. I, I don't think. Because, yeah, I don't think because he could become an athlete that means he mm. should no longer speak out about things. Well, that's kind of like <clears throat> in. Um, in Charles Barkley, I keep on talking about him, but in Charles Barkley day, he he was kind of like, I'm not a role model or like, don't I, I don't need to raise your kids or something like that. But that kind of is a reality because now kids look up to LeBron yeah, James and Steph Curry and things like that. So if they don't see them talking about it, you know, who else are they going to look to? They don't have anybody else who's going to say anything political or anything like that, that they really like look up to. So I do think that is a reality. And I think that Players should definitely choose their words wisely, but I think they should definitely speak mm-hmm. up and, you know, voice their opinion about things going on because, you know, millions of, you know, well, the whole country is watching them. So they can change the opinion of a lot of people yeah. and a lot of people growing up and watching them and different things. So, and yeah, I think it's important. That was about to be my follow up because I was saying how I was going to ask how important do you think it is that these sports figures um, uh, take a stance because... Like, like you said, Charles Barkley said, well, like, I'm not a role model. Like, I'm not, I'm not here to raise your kids. And then the recent situation that happened with, um, what's his name in Florida? The quarterback in Florida, Jameis Winston, he went to, um, he went to a school and he was talking to the girls and he basically said that, um, that men are strong and women are weak. To to paraphrase, that's what I'm saying. So I'm like, do, do we really think it's important? Like, should we essentially, should we look? For athletes to see, I, I don't think I mean, I agree with Charles that it, I, I don't know if an athlete needs to walk around feeling that and that that boy. How do I feel about this? I think by virtue of being in the public eye, mm-hmm. um, it particularly in a profession where young people look up to you, you are going to be a role model whether you like it or not mm-hmm. and whether you intend to be one or not. So in terms of what you do and what you say, you know, you at least should be conscious of it. And then you can be conscious of it and then decide you're going to do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. But the fact is they are. I think I also think it was important, um, particularly what we were talking about. And this is young black men who were getting shot by the police. And so I think it was important for bl- black men still relatively young uh, with public stature to to take a stand on that. You know, in no other reason than to show some support for the kids who were getting hurt, you know, or the or the black men who were getting hurt. So, um, so I, I like I said, I, I was very encouraged by the fact they took a stand. And now I think the we had at Morehouse a couple sessions um, where a group called Rise, which is arisen that was started by the um, owner of the Miami Dolphins. His name is Stephen Ross, mm-hmm. and he started Rise to give support to ac- activist athletes. Um, because there is a danger that um, there's some people who, well, they've got the right to speak out, but they may not say the smartest things. And I think Jameis Winston has definitely 
put himself yeah, in the category. <laughs> that was horrible what he said at school. Yeah, to conclude, I did want to talk about, um, I know in the in class we talk a lot about Trump and different things that's going on with him. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you feel about, I guess, Trump's relationship with the media and um, how he's, you know, started this whole phenomenon with fake news and, you know. Well, I mean, first of all, the first, I mean, the First Amendment is key to democracy. And so the way he's been talking about the media, referring to the lying New York Times and all of that, he really is tearing down one of the key structures in democracy. And I think the reason he is doing it is because he wants to um, delegitimize the media so that when he does things that are unpopular or that the media finds are incorrect, he can have it already planted in the public's mind that you shouldn't pay attention to them yeah. because they're either illegitimate or they're biased against me. I'm scared. So I think it's part of a general strategy of his to tear down the media so that he's immune to their criticism. You know? And that's what I think it's all about. But you get rid of us and you don't have information. Yeah, you don't have a not, not only about whether the president is being honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- where are you going to find so many things, you know, that mm-hmm. in just in society in general, if you don't have the media? Definitely, definitely. Which is why I want all of your listeners out there to read. Yeah, you have to. You I have love to. NPR, so that's that's my, my <laughs> go-to. I'm heavy on NPR. That's why he's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> if you just listen to NPR. This podcast is supported by Rob LeMay Associates a government relations, communications, and policy consulting company based in North Carolina's Research Triangle Park. Um, I'm involved in a documentary about Earl Lloyd, who was the first black player to ever play a game in the NBA. And I'm involved in it because I wrote a book called They Cleared the Lane, which would make a great Christmas gift for anybody you could possibly (laughs) think of. Um, It's it's about the integration of the league in 1950. Few people know that for the first four years of the NBA, there was a secret ban against black players among the owners of the league. And in 1950, that ban was broken. And that's basically what the book is about. Um, And so Earl died a couple years ago. He was a wonderful man. And um, a couple of filmmakers. If you've seen the Benji Wilson 30 for 30 on HBO, the directors, Cootie and Chike, mm-hmm. are the directors of a documentary called First to, to Do It. And uh, that documentary is supposed to be finished probably in April or May. And then it's going to appear in some festivals and some theaters, and hopefully we'll get it on TV. So I'm one of three authors who um, are utilized as sports historians in the documentary. That's great. So look for first to do it. Thanks again to Ron Thomas for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure he could go on and tell us stories for days. Our next guest is Jorge Valencia. I met him about two years ago at the WUNC Youth Radio Institute. Recently, I found out that he is now a public radio correspondent in Mexico. When I heard that, I knew I had to get him on the podcast. And don't worry, I know your Trump meter is going off. Just settle down. We'll get to that soon. I want to thank Jazz WCLK 91.9 for allowing me to use their studio to conduct this interview with Jorge. Here's our conversation. I'm glad to have you today. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I was uh, really happy to uh, hear from you. Also, uh, really happy to, to hear that you're doing this podcast. That's really cool. I guess I just wanted to ask you, you know, kind of to do the same thing you did those two summers ago to kind of tell about, you know, how you got involved in radio journalism or just journalism, period, Um, kind of what steps you took, Uh, you know, kind of walk us through from when you started to where you are now. I'm a correspondent now in uh, Mexico City 
for one of the the radio stations in the NPR network uh, or for the station that's uh, based in Tempe, Arizona. That's the suburbs of Phoenix. Um, I had wanted to do media uh, related work since I was um, probably in my early teens. Um, I, I just I started getting uh, really into music and, and so I thought it'd be cool to, to do something that would let you hang out with rock stars. And then um, that was I was growing up in Colombia, in Bogota, in the capital of Colombia. Um, and then we immigrated to the U.S. when I was 15. And then, um, so by then, I sort of had an idea that that's what I wanted to do. And I did my last year of high school in the D.C. suburbs and then went to university, um, also in the D.C. suburbs at the University of Maryland. And I, um, so I immediately, I tried to, to start writing for the college newspaper as soon as I could, because by then I, I sort of gravitated. I thought that maybe the, the way to, to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish was to do um, uh, journalism. Um, and I was also really motivated uh, to, to try to excel at it because um, we, were, we, were, we were very poor. I mean, it's the, the story that uh, a lot of uh, immigrant families have uh, when they get to the U.S. And uh, my mom had to make, my mom's single mom, she had to make a lot of sacrifices so that they can move to the U.S. And the one who was benefiting from it the most was me because I was getting to go to university there. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of took these two things that I really wanted. I mean, it, it's just like a really personal interest of mine for storytelling. And then I just really wanted to make my mom proud. So I just pursued it really aggressively. And um, actually, at first at the college newspaper, they, they turned me down because you had an application process. And my writing was, was very poor at the time. I'd only been living in the U.S. for like, uh, I don't know, three years. Um, but uh, it turned out that there was a guy from the entertainment section who was in one of my classes. And I befriended him and I wound up writing for his section. And eventually, um, I wound up doing, uh, working there, uh, spending a lot more time there than, than I did in my classes. Our, our paper was daily. Um, so there was a big news hold uh, to fill every single day. And it was a great opportunity for somebody like me who just wanted to be like super involved and wanted to be um, writing stuff all the time. And so then I did um, newspaper internship. Um, I, I uh, my first inter- newspaper internship was a, a small newspaper in Akron, Ohio, um, the home of uh, LeBron. <laughs> and um, then uh, when over Baltimore, then um, and then I did internships at the Miami Herald and at the Wall Street Journal, and uh, I was I was really really proud of that, and um, and I think my mom was really proud of me too, and, which was very meaningful for me. And after I graduated, I worked at a at a small newspaper in Southwest Virginia, uh, in a city um, of about a hundred thousand people. It's called Roanoke, and uh, at first I, I was not very happy to to get there because it was a city much smaller than anywhere where I'd lived. I was not very stoked on that, but very quickly it grew on me and. I went up staying there for almost four years, and and I really liked it. And, uh, and um, since my early teens, when I, when I started getting really into music, I, I was starting to get really into radio also. And I I had just gotten really interested in, in listening to, to public radio, um, both news wise and also music wise. There's a lot of really great music public radio stations. And um, I got a job doing uh, behind the scenes stuff at a talk show in North Carolina at WUNC, um, which is where you and I uh, eventually met. And I did that for a year and a half. And then the show went off the air and um, uh, my bosses decided to, that they wanted to put an additional person covering the state house in Raleigh. And um, and I was there at the right place and at the right time. And they decided, they decided to let me do it. And I did that for almost three years. And it was it was difficult. It was challenging in so many different ways. So I had to do reporting um, for the airwaves. Um, also, 
just a place like the North Carolina State House is, is a place where there's just a ton of activity. Um, and also, I mean, I just, I was kind of like, at a, I mean, it was something that I was pretty stoked about, but at the same time, it was difficult. There was nobody there from who looked like me or who had a background like mine. I mean, yeah. I was I was pretty happy. I was pretty, I mean, I mean, I'm actually not lying. Like, on those days that I went there, I was actually pretty stoked about being like, you know, I'm like this immigrant kid, but I'm here in, in this building where a lot of decisions get made that impact um, the 9 million people, 9, 10 million people who live in North Carolina. And, and I'm interviewing the people who are making those decisions and sometimes I'm grilling them. And um, and that was that was really cool. Um, uh, that was really cool. I, I, got, I got to meet a lot of uh, lawmakers who really... Um, are people who, who are doing what, what they think is best for their state. And uh, so, yeah, and then, um, like I was saying, I mean, since early on, I mean, I wanted to do, like, international work. Um, I think a lot of people want to do that. And also, for me, it was very appealing, given that I had grown up in, in two different countries. And then I heard about this, uh, one of the NPR stations was hiring somebody in Mexico City. And, and, um, and so I pursued it pretty aggressively. I mean, I, I was I was happy with what I was doing in North Carolina, but I thought going somewhere else would be really cool. And, uh, and eventually I got it. And I've uh, been here since August. So how, do, how was it, like, going from somewhere where, where it wasn't a lot of people that looked like you to somewhere, I guess, where it was a few more people who looked like you. Um, yeah. What was that like? Yeah. Oh, man. It's been so strange because I actually thought, I actually thought, well, I'm going to this country, uh, to this Latin American country. It's not the one that I grew up in, but my country shares a language with them, shares so much culture with mm -hmm. them. Um, and I've already done this like immigrating thing once before. I, I just thought, like, this is going to be easy. Um, uh, and it hasn't been because um, just Mexico is its, its own beast. I mean, Mexico is a country of 130 million people, and then Mexico City is its own beast. In fact, some people like call it the beast as a nickname. It's the most popular city in the world. It's got um, like 24 million people. It is sprawling. It is chaotic. It is congested. Um, it's also pretty. It's also got like really beautiful colors, um, and it's got a lot of culture. And so, you know, I can understand them perfectly. I think most of the time they can understand me perfectly. Um, but there's a lot of cultural things that are, that are that are really different. Also, given the fact that, I mean, I just lived in the U.S. so much that I was, you know, at, at this point, I mean, I, I identify with being American um, just as much as I identify with being Colombian. Um, so things here move at a little bit of a slower pace than they, than they do in the U.S. Um, getting interviews is, is not as easy. People are, are a lot more cagey, both in government and and also in business, which which are two sort of general groups that I have to pursue a lot for for the reporting that I do. Um, so yes, I mean to go back to what you're saying, like it's it is cool. Like I mean to be in a place where you know more most people kind of look like me. That's cool. Um, it's also been like a really big learning experience, um, just because it's, it's a different culture from what I've gotten used to in the East Coast of the U.S. and and it's different um, than than uh, than growing up uh, in Colombia. As you can see, Jorge is a pretty nice guy. He definitely doesn't sound like a rapist, murderer, or enemy of the public. But he is an immigrant and a journalist, so it made me curious how this Trump presidency has affected him. I remember before before I moved here, I got to cover, for North Carolina Public Radio, I got to cover several um, presidential uh, campaign stops in North Carolina, uh, including um, uh, from then-candidate Trump. And when I went there, I was, I was like, uh, to be honest with you, I was like a little bit weary going into it because I, because exactly what you said, I thought, I'm, I'm a brown person, I'm, I'm an immigrant, and, and I'm a journalist, and these are groups that, that this particular candidate has said things that are unfavorable about. Um, and then, and you know, and then I also have like a, a good friend of mine um, uh, covered the, the campaign uh, permanently for CNN, 
in. And, uh, and, she, and so she got to experience like a lot of that heat just by virtue of being, she's, she's, a, she's a white American, but she's a journalist. And, she, and mm-hmm. she got a lot of heat from people just from being in this bullpen that's usually in the middle of, of where they have the rallies and all the journalists are corralled in there. And so people would turn around, they boo with them, et cetera. But anyway, um, here in Mexico, I mean, the, the way that, it, that it's been seen is just like, it's been like really surreal since he got elected. Um, you know, given that in his campaign, um, one of the groups or one of the entities that, 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 that he spoke about, like unfavorably about, was Mexico. And it's sort of, and Mexico, sort of in his, in the narrative that he, that he wrote, Mexico became a villain because Mexico is sending, you, you know, under that narrative, Mexico is sending U.S. immigrants that the U.S. doesn't want. Mexico is taking advantage of the U.S. commercially uh, through the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, so here in Mexico, he's seen like big time as as um, as a villain. And in fact, since he got elected, he is in the Mexican press on newspaper front pages at mm-hmm. the at the top of uh, uh, TV newscast. So often, I mean, so much more often than the Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto. That like, if you were dropped from Mars here, like you would think that the president of Mexico is Donald Trump. Um, wow. And so, and he's sort of like become a part of pop culture. I mean, you'll, you'll in some streets and some markets on the street, you'll see people sell t-shirts with his face on it and then like something not nice written on it or, or hats or, or just, uh, for example, this weekend I was at this uh, 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 music, this weekend long uh, music festival called uh, Vive Latino and most of the bands happen to be, for, on this festival uh, most of the bands are Latin American and I mean I heard like, I don't know, like at least three bands that were like dedicating songs to him about just how awful of a person they thought that he was. Wow. Um, have you, have so, you encountered anybody who is for Trump there? Um, very, 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 very few. I mean, just they're they're here, but there's just very, very, very few of them. And mm-hmm. and I've looked for them for for my reporting, but there's few of them. And there are there are actually some. So so Mexico's home to the biggest American population outside of the U.S. The, there's uh, there's this, there's basically an association of like Americans who live here. They estimate that there's like two million Americans who live here. Mm-hmm. Among them, there's some people uh, who, who support Donald Trump. Uh, I remember I spoke um, to this guy. He's a retired physician from Arizona who lives in uh, Lake Chapala's big uh, retiree community. He's a libertarian and and uh, he's been in Mexico for like 10, 15 years. Loves Mexico. He also thinks that like that that what uh, Donald Trump says that he's going to do and, and is doing will be great for America. So those people are here, but they're in a very, very small minority because the vast majority of people are just like, have like visceral reactions to him, like negative yeah. visceral reactions to him. Yeah. Another thing that yeah. uh, that perhaps you might not hear about in the U.S. that I have, that I have witnessed is that um, he has encouraged some countries outside of the U.S. to sort of to, to rally together. You sort of give him then like a something that they can all like mutually like oppose um mm-hmm. i mean the the mexican government the the, the foreign relations secretary uh, has pursued or, or has been saying that he wants the country to mexico to diversify its commercial connections to other countries because uh after um after the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed in 1994, uh, excuse me, 1993, went to effect in 1994, um, it allowed for, for, for goods to move freely from Mexico to the U.S. to Canada. And so Mexico started exporting and importing a lot more from the U.S. And now, 20 years later, what we see is that 80% of Mexico's exports go to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that's basically a lot of eggs in one basket. And so the 
Secretary, uh, Finance Secretary, been saying that they want to develop, they want to cultivate their ties in other places more. And it seems that um, countries in Latin America are sort of, you know, they don't speak publicly or, you know, very directly, but it seems like they, they're like, okay, Mexico, like, we support you. The Foreign Secretary of Spain was here last week. I, I was there at an event for that. And he's basically like, you know, we'll support Mexico for whatever they need. Um, China, which is, which is, the biggest economic story of our time um, has has been been entering the, the Mexican market for the last 10, 15 years, and this is a new opportunity for them to enter further, both commercially and politically. If uh, if 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 the current administration does does succeed in, in implementing the protectionist policies that that the president promised. Um, countries like China could, could stand to gain from that because then countries like Mexico would would find it more appealing um, to um, to do trade with, uh, with with a country like China instead of the U.S. Wow, that's pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> that is deep. <laughs> well, I guess one question that everybody wants the answer to is: um, Is Mexico going to pay for the wall? Yeah, that's a really good question. If you ask <laughs> virtually anybody here in Mexico, they will say, "Heck." To the no, right? They're not going to pay for the wall. Um, I mean, it's still unclear how 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 it is that the U.S. government could could force Mexico to do that. I think that the most yeah. visible um, proposal or option that was floated by the administration was, I think, Trump at some event in February. Either he said or one of his spokespeople said, I can't remember. But they're basically like, okay, we're gonna, we're just gonna like put like these really high tariffs. I think it was like at least twenty percent on imports from Mexico. Well, that, I mean, they just can't. I don't think they could do that unilaterally. I think that that the Congress would have to be involved in that. And then also, if they did that, then American consumers would wind up putting uh, for that bill. And then also, um, you know, that would make it more 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 likely that that some of those goods from Mexico would go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So anyway, sorry. I know that was kind of that answer that just gave you kind of deep in the trenches. Um, <laughs> but but at least here, at least if you, if you ask anybody here, it's like no way, like absolutely yeah. no way. Of um, course, of course. That, at least that's what it looks like from this side. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for um, coming on, uh, being willing to be interviewed. Um, I appreciate it so much. Um, I just want to say thank oh, you. Oh, thanks, Emmanuel. Thank yeah. you. Well, it's, it's been really fun, and uh, you know, good luck with the podcast. I really look forward to, to listening to all the cool stories um, that you have coming out and also hearing your perspective and, and the perspective from your co-host. Uh, yeah. that, that's really awesome that you all are doing this. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode of The Deep End. To hear future episodes of The Deep End, and our regular podcast episodes. You can now find us on the podcast app on iTunes and Stitcher and still on SoundCloud. Just type in 3D Podcast in the search bar. To stay updated with everything going on with the podcast, make sure you follow our Twitter at The3D Podcast. And also feel free to email us at The3D Podcast if you have any suggestions for the podcast or just to tell us what you think. All right, guys, hope to see you next time. Peace.